The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipporah, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a 118-year-old, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any opinions expressed are those of the speakers. Now, we produce hundreds of programs a year, including during the pandemic. So you can head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for all upcoming programs, plus podcasts and videos of our past events. And keep your eyes open for the rollout of our new Michelle Miao newsletter. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show, and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us here. I'm excited to be here on stage at the Commonwealth Club. If you're joining us for the first time, The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Earlier this month, once prominent Democratic donor and LGBTQ advocate Ed Buck of West Hollywood was, was uh, convicted of nine charges, including the deaths of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean, maintaining a drug den, distrib- distribution of methamphetamines, and solicitation of prostitutes. The conviction may have been different or the outcome may have been different had it not been for the work of advocates and activists such as our guest today. Our guest is Jasmine Kanick, who is a journalist, a political strategist, an activist, an advocate, and many more. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to do this conversation today. Oh, yeah. We are definitely going to get into it. And like I said, I mean, had it not been for your hard work on this, I'm not sure that the outcome would have been what it is. But before we get into our conversation, we actually do have a two-minute clip from an interview that you did on Fox News. I'd love to play it just to give some context to our audience today. Okay. Justice has been served up in California this week as prominent Democrat donor Ed Buck has finally been convicted in the overdose deaths of two gay black men. But one thing is missing, outrage from the left. The side that says black lives matter is conspicuously silent when two black lives are lost. Many believe it's because of Ed Buck's connections. Buck has donated thousands to well-known Democrat politicians, including Barack Obama, Ted Lieu, and Hillary Clinton. Maybe this is why the left is so quiet. But one person who has refused to let the story fall on deaf ears is our next guest, Jasmine Kanick. She joins me now. Jasmine, uh, a great deal of work of uh, being an activist and, and caring about things is quiet, anonymous work. You never get credit for anything. Uh, you stuck to it. You have victory with this finally getting this monster off the streets. Tell us how it feels 
and what why what your sense is about why it took so long. Well, I'm a journalist and a political strategist. I'm not necessarily an activist, but I know this seems like activisty work. We've been at it for four years. Um, you know, two men have died, countless others almost died. Um, it is such a humongous relief to know that Ed Buck will never be on the streets again. And you're absolutely right. I am an elected member of the Democratic Party. I am so disappointed in my party. They have had very little to say about this whole entire ordeal over the past four years. Some even wanting to give Ed Buck the benefit of the doubt. Oh. It's embarrassing. It's very, very frustrating. But it also is an opportunity for us to have a conversation about the difference between actually doing the work and paying lip service to the work, right? So you can't just say Black Lives Matter. And then when countless black men are being preyed upon by uh you know, one of our donors mm -hmm. turn the other way. We didn't do that with Harvey Weinstein. We haven't done that with other people. And I know good and well, if Ed Buck had been a Republican donor, they would have been screaming bloody murder. And so I need for my party, for the party that claims that black people are so important to its, um, to its mission and to its values to act like it when someone is killing us. Oof. Oof. <laughs> okay, we will get into it, but I think a good place to start is, you know, let's profile Ed Buck and, um, you know, who exactly is Ed Buck? And you saw it in the news clip there that the media, once they even included the story of the deaths of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean, they kept flashing that photo of Ed Buck with presidential candidate Hillary Clinton in that very cute rainbow bow tie, which as a person who's consuming the news it's very, it makes it very hard to connect and, and even think that this cute old man can be responsible for the deaths of human beings. So who is Ed Buck? Who is the real Ed Buck? Well, first of all, there's nothing cute about Ed Buck, okay? And secondly, I will say this. Look, um, you know, I watched that clip like you just did, and I don't watch myself after I do interviews usually. So I think that was the first time I've ever watched that all the way through like that. And um, what I will say is this, um, the media, different media for different reasons latched on to different things when it came to Ed Buck. Of course you would expect the Fox News to capitalize on the fact that he was a Democratic donor. I can't be mad at them and I can't fault them for that. At least they were willing to talk about it and put it on air, which is more than I can say for CNN and a lot of the other um, more mainstream news that you would have thought would have picked it up, right? So at, 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 at his core, you know, Ed Buck is your garden variety, average, you know, white gay man who um, lived in West Hollywood, had a substantial amount of money. Uh, we still don't quite know how he has, um, how he got all that money, but he has it. And he was very involved in politics in, in, in West Hollywood. Um, I, if you do any research, you'll see that he had a lot to do with the city's fur ban, which I believe was the first in the country. He ran for city council there. He used his money to gain influence with um, politicians at various levels. Um, you know, we've totaled well over half a million dollars that he's donated. Um, I, I know they always like to point out Hillary Clinton and Ted Lieu and Adam Schiff and, and President Obama. But look, he gave money to lots and lots and lots of other people. And that's, you know, who he was publicly, you know, behind closed doors, uh, he was a meth addict. Mm -hmm. 
he um, was, you know, clearly suffered from some dangerous fetishes that involved um, bringing Black men to the brink of death, and in the case of two, to death, right? And, you know, I tell people all the time when I do talk about this, that this was just such a fascinating situation of and fascinating in an unfortunate way, not fascinating in a good way, but that it brought all of these intersections together, right? So you have, you know, this white gay Democrat who lives in West Hollywood. Clearly, he's a part of the queer community. You have Black men that he's preying on, most of whom are queer themselves and unhoused. And, you know, I know that, um, you know, in San Francisco, just like in L.A., we have a, a huge crisis when it comes to, to our unhoused population. And here in L.A., I don't know how it is in San Francisco, Michelle, but in L.A., the majority of the unhoused are Black men. So, you know, it brought that into it. It brought the politics into it, because even to this very day, most of my party will not talk about it, will not acknowledge what happened, particularly the people who took his money. Like, they have, they completely want to just kind of they hate to see me coming. <laughs> they just kind of want to bypass it. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting question. So when you ask me who he is, yeah, most times people are going to describe him as this white political donor. But I'm also going to add, and he's a meth addict, and he's he also suffers from dangerous fetishes that, that um, were predicated on almost killing Black men exclusively. Yeah. Did he... So we mentioned the the two who died. We know of Timothy Dean and is it Jamel Moore? Jamel Moore, correct. Jamel Moore. Is there any reason to suspect there were other men that we don't know about who died as a result of this? Absolutely, there certainly is. And um, look, you know, one of the the ways this this kind of took off was that when I originally wrote about it other young men started stepping forward and saying, hey, I know this dude, look at these pictures, look at these videos, look at these text messages, uh, look at, you know, this you know, my Zelle account or my Cash App account, how you sent me money. Um, and not all of those men testified during the trial, right? So the, you know, the public only knows about some of them, the ones that I, I didn't even write about all of the people that I met. Um, some didn't want me to write about them, um, and I respected that. They wanted to tell me what happened and what they knew and give me what they had, but they didn't necessarily want me. And and anyone who's read what I wrote, they know that I used pseudonyms. I never used anyone's name. Um, I always tried to respect their their privacy and did that all the way up until the trial. But unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, in our um, our legal system is that you have the right to know who your accuser is. And so in the court documents, I, even though I disagreed with naming the victims, because I felt like, look, if they were white women who were victims, we wouldn't identify them in the way that we did, uh, which did cause some of them a lot of grief and problems, you know, because some of them had moved forward and didn't want the whole world to know. Um, but it is what it is. What can I say? But um, so, yeah, there are there are still uh, to this day, I actually still have uh, men reaching out to me, um, some who feel more comfortable now because he was convicted. 
Um, there's a, a young man who I will just refer to as the name of, by the name of Star, who passed away two years ago. He was a victim of Ed Bucks and didn't live to see um, this, this day in terms of the conviction. But I always lift Star up because Star was really, really helpful to us just in terms of information and telling us, you know, his ordeal and what he had gone through with Ed Buck. And unfortunately, Star um, passed away from complications due to AIDS. And so he did not make it. So, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I, I firmly do believe there are probably other deaths, probably lots and lots of other victims because he'd been doing this for over 20 years. So mm -hmm. it's, that's a long time. And that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. In, in an interview, uh, you shook me to my core when you described Ed Buck as the modern Jeffrey Dahmer. And if you, mm. if you know a story about Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, there was actually a young victim of his that had escaped. Um, and yes. it, was a Laos, it was a kid whose family had just immigrated here from Laos. And, uh, and he's, he almost got away. It was, he was, ran away from Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment he was naked, he was bloody, and it was an, a young African-American girl who called the police, and uh, the kid didn't, couldn't talk. He was drugged up, but they didn't believe the young African-American girls. Jeffrey Dahmer comes out and says, oh, this is my lover, and so the police turns the kid back over to Jeffrey Dahmer, and if, if, you know, we know uh, what the outcome right. of that is, sadly. And, they're, they're, and so what I'm getting at is... Um, you know, Ed Buck, a, a predator, uh, someone very scary, monstrous. Oh, he is. Look, look, let me tell you something. I knew he was a bad person, but it wasn't until that trial that I knew exactly how bad he was. Like, it was very, very scary. Um, he... When I when I said that he was the Jeffrey Dahmer of my generation, I completely meant that. He, um, his actions, the way that he preyed on these men, his callousness, his callous disregard for their their life and their well being. I mean, you know, I I made it a point to be very. Um, I don't want to say transparent because I try to be, I always try to be transparent, but I just gave people the raw, unfiltered, this is what happened in court today, every single day, right? I, I said, look, let me, I'm going to type it up. This is everything that was said. This is what happened. Who testified? And it was people, if people, if you hadn't been there, you might not have believed that that actually happened that he said that that he did that that we saw that that we read that i mean he was horrific and listening to the testimony of his victims was just so sad and moving and i know the jury clearly the jury was not was moved right clearly because they they came back with their verdict but that was, it was a hard, it was a very hard seven days. It was very hard. There was nothing about that trial that was easy. Um, I personally don't like looking at crime scene photos. I do not enjoy 
seeing people taken advantage of, seeing people hurt. And we had to sit through that and, and watch things like that over and over and over again. Now, I know why the prosecution did it, because they had to make their case. But for me, it, you know, like I said, I realized, yeah, this dude's pretty bad. And we did a great thing getting him off the streets. But man, do we really know now how great of a thing we did in getting him off the streets? Because clearly more people would have died. Like he didn't care. More people would have definitely died for sure. We are absolutely sure about that. So during the trial, what was his defense? I mean, did he deny it happened or did he, he I, I mean, I've read some of what you've written about things that, that his lawyers tried to say. Did yeah. he talk himself and, and give any defense? No, he never testified in his own defense. Um, I mean, what are you going to say? That's not me on the video shooting him up. That's not me on the video encouraging him to do more and more meth. That's not me on the video doing this and that, right? No, he didn't testify in his, his, on his own behalf. Uh, the defense actually only put up one witness, which was a paid doctor to say that Jamel died of AIDS and not, the, not on the meth in his system. And Timothy Dean died of a heart condition and alcohol, not on the meth in his system. Um, that was it in terms of defense, right? Um, he sat there and he, he, you know, I'll tell you this, the man can't sit still. So he, he sat at the table with his attorneys. He couldn't really sit still. He was always talking to them, telling them stuff. It just, to me, uh, what I saw was, you know, I was like, oh, you know, he got these two black men who are his attorneys, Christopher Darden being one of them who uh, some folks will recall from the O.J. Simpson uh, prosecution. He was a co-prosecutor, Marsha Clark, on that. And then he has another Black attorney. And all I could see is this white man directing these Black men on what to do from the defense table. I mean, that's pretty much all he did. He never got up and spoke for himself, not one single time. So... What the case does is, um, you know, put some attention into the... The fact that young black lives, young or, you know, black queer lives, how how they're treated and regarded in you know society and not even just talking about like the criminal case, but even to be believed. I mean, when we heard about Jamel Moore, it was very quick and easy to just say that he died of an accidental overdose. And I would I would say if somebody died in my home. I think that there would be a full-on investigation right. and there would be a ton of questions asking me how this person died. Can you walk us through at that very beginning or, yeah, like who, who failed who in this? Why, why did it end up so quick? And it wasn't until Tim, Timothy Dean died in a you know, similar fashion inside of Ed Buck's home. And then you bring it to the national attention that people were saying, okay, there's something odd about this. We, we should look into it. So I, you know, I give all the credit to Jamel Moore's mother, right? Mothers just know things instinctively. And she knew this is not right. My son just left me a few hours ago and he is dead in this white man's apartment. She knew it wasn't right. She had already had a conversation with her son about Ed Buck. So she kind of had 
some idea, right, um, that that he wasn't a good person. Um, and she was shocked and appalled that, you know, here you have this 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 boy, dead boy, on the floor in this man's apartment. The sheriffs come, and the only person living gets to say, "Oh, I, you know, he must have brought those drugs over here with him. I don't know anything about that. I just try to help these young men." Blah blah blah. And the okay, well, let us get this body out of your way. You know, take him, and you know. As they're leaving, here comes another one right up the stairs. And, you know, the, the sheriff's detectives have to say, de deputies have to say, no, 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 you, you can't come visit him right now. We're in the middle of a death investigation. That should have set off warning signals right then and there. Can I interrupt? You're, yes. you're, 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 you're I thought you were joking at first when you said someone else is coming up the stairs. That literally no. happened. No, no, that really happened. The video's on my YouTube page. It ran on the local news in Los Angeles, yes. And the only reason that video became public is because the manager of his apartment building gave it up. <laughs> so you literally see at the top of the stairs, Ed Buck looking high and disheveled, the sheriff's deputies, and this young black man with a, like a, gym bag, like with his belongings in it, trying to walk up the stairs. And then during the trial, the deputy who had to turn him away testified to what, how that, um, about that whole entire situation. So no, that's not a joke. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, so when you ask me who felt, so, so that, there, I wanted to say that because I, I always want to give credit to Ms. Nixon, uh, Jamel Moore's mother, because one, I would never have been involved in none of this had it not been for her because she knew something was wrong and she was putting out SOSs all over the place just trying to get anyone to pay attention to what happened, right? Along with his friends, right? His friends also knew that that this wasn't right. And again, you know, it just, it, it kind of took, you know, all of us bringing what we had to the table and saying, this, you know, we're going to get this done, right? And in the beginning, yeah, no, everyone gave Ed Buck the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I can remember his his attorney, Seymour Amster, going on the news and going to city council and just telling people about how uh, we were trying to start a race war and that his client did nothing but try to help, you know, underprivileged, disadvantaged Black men that, you know, they already had these bad habits and his client was just trying to help them. You know, I ain't heard nothing from Seymour since the conviction, though, by the way. We haven't seen him on TV or heard from him at all. So, you know, I, I just, I wonder about him in those early statements, uh, you know, making Ed Buck out to be this great savior of Black men, but it's another story. But, uh, but yeah, everybody wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, here's a man who, if you're, I'm a political strategist, right? So, you know, we give money. We love money in politics. You have a donor. If your maximum contribution is, let's say, $1,000, you know, most people might give you $100, $50. This is a man who always maxes out on people. He is your favorite kind of donor. Nobody was trying to um to 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 
stop that flow of money, okay? He, you know, he, you know, there are people he gave over, well over $20,000 to. So I think it was, you know, and again, like he ran for city council, he worked on the fur ban, he was really involved in the local politics. I think it was, you know, he was an animal rights activist. It was real easy for people to point to all of these other things. Look, let me tell you something. He treated some animals better than he treated those black men that he brought into his apartment, okay? Hands down. He treated the animals way better. Um, but, you know, we knew, I, I started to, like I said, I first really knew something was wrong. Well, of course I knew something wrong when Jamel Moore died, but I really started to know when the men just started reaching out to me and started, and they all couldn't be lying because they all had these text messages and these photos and it's the same apartment, same ratty couch, same, you know, all the things are the same in them. They even had videos of him. Uh, so, you know, it was really clear that there was this um, this clear pattern, right, of behavior when it came to, to Adbuck. And, you know, a year after Jamel Moore died, our former district attorney, Jackie Lacey, said that there just simply wasn't enough evidence to, to find him guilty of anything. And I, I skipped a, a small part. We were able to make the sheriff's department open a homicide investigation 19 days after Jamel Moore had died. Um, I think a lot of evidence was gone by then, but nonetheless, they, they did open a homicide investigation. And uh, within that 19 days, one of the things that really helped with that was that we, you know, when Jamel died, he had his backpack with him. He had just flown from Houston and he had his diary in there. And his mother let me publish the pages from his diary where he made it really clear, this is who did it to me. <laughs> like, this is who did it. This is how it happened. This is how I feel. And, you know, I feel really bad sometimes because it's like, as Black people, we go through a lot. And it's like, even when we tell you who hurt us, who killed us, you still don't believe us. You know, we all could have wrote that. That could, that could be, for, okay, who, who's going, who wants to forge a diary saying Ed Buck gave them their first hit of crystal meth and that, you know, they want to die and that they're being forced to do meth. I mean, come on now. But after that diary was made public, you know, then the sheriff's department was like, oh, well, we better at least act like we're doing something. So they opened a homicide investigation. Now, the first set of detectives that we had, which was after Jamel died, I, I cannot sit here and tell you that they were Ben Tutuola and Olivia Benson, because they were not. Okay, they did not see these men as special victims. They saw them as prostitutes, which is a word that we don't even use. We use the words that they like us to use, which is sex worker or escort. And so it was really hard for us to work with them. And like I said, the district attorney at the time, Jackie Lacey, came back and said, nope, we don't have enough evidence, uh, so no charges will be filed. And that was the day that we had this press conference in front of the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department. And I said, okay, when the next person dies, that's going to be on you. And six months later, that's when Timothy Dean um, died in the exact same place, everything, cause, everything, um, you know, in, in uh, Ed Buck's apartment. And 
Um, I will never forget that day either because it was early in the morning and um, uh, the mayor, um, I think she was, I don't think she was the mayor at the time, but Councilwoman, which she's mayor now, um, Lindsay Horvath in West Hollywood called me and she was just crying, crying, crying. And I'm like, well, what's going on? Like she couldn't get the words out. And she's like, it happened again. And I'm like, what happened again? And then it dawned on me and I was like, oh my goodness. But as crude as this may sound, that probably was the turning point, I think, for people to pay attention, right? Um, we got a new set of detectives assigned to the case. Um, Sergeant Car uh, Paul Cardell and Q Rodriguez, Detective Q Rodriguez, who, you know, were phenomenal and they did treat them like they were special victims. And they took this case very seriously. Um, you know, we owe everything to them because they were the ones that did the investigation that gave the prosecutors the, um, the evidence that they needed to, to take it to trial, right? Um, and so things did start to change, but, you know, this ain't law and order. So things don't get wrapped up in 48 minutes with 12 minutes to spare in commercials. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the wheel of justice takes a lot of time to turn, right? So there's a lot of frustration, I will admit, even on my end, um, because the man was free and he continued to go on with life as, as usual, business as usual, right? But um, definitely it went up a notch just in terms of people's awareness. But believe it or not, Michelle and John, I still get messages from people to this very day thanking me and stuff. And they're like, I didn't know anything about this. It just happened to pop up. On... I'm always amazed at that. I'm always amazed because, you know, I'm like, you know, how we consume media in America. This is one of those kind of situations, you know, Dateline, uh, I can go on and on and on. Like, you know, this, you know, this had everything, right? But there are still people who are, who still don't even know about this case. But, um, but Timothy Dean's death really did, really did play a huge turning point in terms of the um, law enforcement and, um, and, 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 and in some ways, the news media, you know, because I tell you in the beginning, you know, I think I still have the emails. I have emails. Well, um, my boss won't let us do the story because Ed Buck might sue us. It's all kinds of excuses for why the story couldn't be covered in the beginning. And then they wondered why I never returned their calls after he got arrested and after he got convicted. I'm like, don't, uh -uh, don't come at me now. <laughs> uh, talking about people still reaching out to you, I'm curious whether from the political or the police or the journalistic world, is there anyone who has since the conviction or since it was the trial reached out to you and said, boy, I was wrong that, you know, in, in it, not, not, not just, I hadn't heard about this, but you know, I was ignoring this. I, I was, I mean, anyone kind of just come back to you and say, I'm sorry, you were right all along, Jasmine. No, no, these are people that would say that, like in the beginning of our conversation, I said, I still sticking their head in the sand. Oh, and they are so, they don't like to see me coming because, you know, 
we're coming up to prime election season in California and particularly in Los Angeles beyond the governor recall. We have our, you know, we have our state and local elections and they just don't know. I will be sitting in the audience with my own. He took $20,000 from Ed, but I, I, they, they will see me throughout the enti their entire campaign trail. But those same people who should probably have done that um, reached out to us. They never did. Uh, but the people who who did believe, um, you know, you know, they were with us. I mean, I got. I will. I will say this. I acknowledge that I get a lot of credit for Ed Buck, and I appreciate it. Um, but I didn't do it alone. <laughs> you know, we had a whole team. We brought in Timothy Dean's, um, sisters, you know, like they were our own sisters after he died, right? We embraced them. We really made this like, you know, a family thing, you know, Jamel's friends, Timothy Dean's friends, like we all worked together. I just used my... I used a little bit of journalism and some of my political strategy and put the two together and said, this is how we're going to get this done. And it did work. Um, and I'm grateful for that. But I will never sit here and say, like, I did this all by myself because I did not. We had a lot of support from his mother, Jamel's mother and Timothy Dean's sisters. And like I said, both of the men's friends were also very involved. And we have you know, two attorneys, Hussein Turk and Nana Jumpy, who really helped. I mean, look, we were very thoughtful about everything we did. So even in the beginning, when these young men were coming forward saying, oh, hey, I know this, I know that, you know, I had uh, asked my good friend attorney Jumpy to, um, to get involved. And she did. And to this day, she still is that she actually represents them, the families in the civil side for the wrongful death suits. But we worked to get these men immunity so that they would feel comfortable with going in to speak. Because, again, you know, they're still black and they're men and they go in, they're admitting to drug use and sex work and other crimes, right, that they could arrested and charged for and we you know we really thought things through we were like yes we want them to talk to the authorities but we don't want them to get arrested at the same time so we gonna need uh, immunity from the DA's office and we need this and we need that like we really methodically put a lot of pieces in place um, to to also protect the folks who were trying to help at the same time um, and you know when I look back on on everything that we did over the past four years. It's amazing, but it it feels so good. You know, I can't wait for sentencing. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm gonna wear bells, I think I'll have bells on. I don't know, I'm gonna wear something fabulous, but I, I cannot wait for his sentencing date. <laughs> uh, well, we know that, you know, we know how you feel about uh, the Democratic Party and their non-response. Yeah. And it's almost like, I'll be honest with you, to me is uh, a natural response from any political party is to not respond. But what about the LGBTQ community or movement as a whole and any support that you got there? And I ask this because, you know, 
we're at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, and the movement is founded. A couple of co-founders are queer black people. And um, so I'm very curious about that is, you know, did you have a whole lot of support and rallying from the LGBTQIA plus community? Okay, so a couple of things. <laughs> um, we're, I'm going to go back to your first comment. Look, the Democratic Party has a responsibility to Black folk. Uh, they depend on us every election. They're always hollering that our lives matter. So, yeah, I feel some kind of way about the party right now. Uh, I, I'm still an elected member of the party, and I love that, too, because you can't kick me out of the room. I get to be in there and say all these things because somebody has to be your conscience, right? And really, that's the only reason why I ran, so I could do that. Um, but just like with Black people, the queer community is also a huge part of the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, one group that had a hard time with this was the Stonewall Democratic Club here in LA. They did. Well, to his friends, you know, he was very active in that group, gave them a lot of money. And, it, it, you know, every, every step of the way, they had to be pushed, 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 pushed to do the right thing. They certainly, certainly did. And just quite recently, last month, we were able to get enough votes to get rid of their president. We have a new president now, and Alex Mohair. I got elected to the board. We changing that whole outfit right there. And I love it because, you know, again, if you're going to be the queer Democratic group for L.A. County, you need to be reflective of the county, right? And so when, when I hear you ask me that, that's the first. So Stonewall was a major headache, but not so much anymore since we've got new leadership and this new leadership is acknowledging things and taking responsibility, and I really appreciate that. Um, I'm one of the founders of the National Black Justice Coalition, um, which was the first Black um, LGBTQ civil rights organization um, here in, in the country. And so I had a lot of support from a lot of the national organizations. As a matter of fact, they put a letter out. Uh, they had They did an open letter where where um, dozens of organizations had signed um, calling on um, the powers that be to do something about it, right? Um, I had a lot of support from my good friend Patrice Colors, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, um, as well as Malene, Dr. Melina Abdullah here in LA. Um, you know, so we, you know, again, when you talk about that intersection, right? Black community, queer community, Black queer community, like, you know, but there was, you know, I, where I got the most resistance, I would say, is out of the white gay community. But in terms of Black people and Black queer folks, no. When they found out, they were on it. As a matter of fact, the media that stayed on this from day one was the Black media. Like, they um, really didn't let this go, and they always gave space for all the updates for everything that was going on, which made sure that, you know, Black communities knew what was going on. I think they were more informed about what was going on with Abex than anyone else. Um, but at the same time, I will say that Neil Braverman over at The Advocate, who has been a really good friend of mine for decades, he also did the same thing and making sure, like, look, they may not want to hear about it, 
but I'm gonna make sure the advocate uh, covers it. And he did. He, I don't know if he got any slack for it. I don't know over the years, but he did. He he did put that. He made sure the advocate uh, talked a lot about Ed Buck. And then locally, we have a um, uh, LGBTQ newspaper, um, the LA Blade. I think it's sister paper is the Washington Blade. They've been around for a while. No, they Blade did, um, they did do some coverage as well. Of course, everybody got better with their coverage um, after he was arrested, because I guess maybe that gave them the, I don't know, the invitation that they needed. I don't know. Um, but, and then with the conviction, it was like, ooh, you know, everybody, I'm like, you know, my phone's ringing off the hook. Um, but in the beginning, no, not so much. Um, and even now, I mean, Stonewall just held a picnic for, to raise money for the legal. So we have this um, legal fund that raises money for the wrongful death lawsuits because in law, if you're gonna if you're gonna see someone in the civil court, you pay for that. That's not something the state's gonna pay for. Um, and so we had been funding that ourselves, and we started raising money for that. And Stonewall actually held a fundraiser um, for us, and they uh, I think they raised like fifteen hundred dollars, which was great. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, there have been a lot of black queer groups, like in the meantime, and. Um, some other groups around the country that have been super helpful, but in terms of like sort of your mainstream kind of white gay group, mm, not so many. No. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to borrow that now. Hmm. John? You wrote on August 4th that Ed Buck's attorney, attorneys were trying to get the conviction overturned. Can you tell us what's happening with that? Bring us up to date on, on this, this case. Great question. We're in court on Monday. <laughs> so we'll be in court on Monday. They, I mean, it's a standard thing to, um, my friend Nana was explaining to me how, because I'm not an attorney. A lot of people think I am, but I'm not. I just work with a bunch of them. But she was just telling me how it's, it's you know, usual for attorneys to file for a motion for acquittal. We figured that he was going to try to appeal anyway. This is kind of setting that up for an, for his appeal. Um, I don't see Judge Snyder wanting to overturn the jury's um, verdict. Um, no one gets the sense that that's actually going to happen. I don't even think his own attorneys think that is going to happen. But they're going through the motions, and we have court on Monday. I'm sure it will be denied. And then we can move right on into sentencing phase, which should be November, December, somewhere around that, I think. And what sort of a sentence is he looking at likely, do you think? Well, at 67, he's looking at life. But if you want me to break it down for you, I mean, look, the first two counts involving the deaths are 20 years minimum each. Of course, he can do it concurrently, um, I keep forgetting how they consecutively or concurrently, but let's just say he gets it, you know, where, you know, he's doing a straight 20 years for both. I mean, the man, and you got to do 80% of your time, 85% of your time in federal prison. 
And the man would be damn near 90 years old. So, you know, that's, and that's just on the first two counts. We still got seven more counts that carry 10 year minimums. So I figure he going away for a long time. And lots of things happen in prison. So I can just, Jeffrey Dahmer went to prison too. Mm-hmm. He did. He did. And, he as, you did. Point, and as you pointed <laughs> out, he was uh, not only convicted on just two accounts, he was convicted on all of the accounts unanimously, which makes it a pretty hard uh, thing to challenge, I would think, legally. Yeah, I mean, judges don't like to overturn juries' verdicts anyway. But as Nana so aptly reminded me in terms of the appellate court, she said Bill Cosby is walking around as a free man today. So who knows what's going to happen during the appeals process. But what I'm clear on is he won't be free anytime soon. Even through the appeals process, he will still be uh, uh, remanded in custody. He won't be free. So we can all go through them. We'll go through the motion. I had a time when it comes to this. I'm going to see it all the way through. Mm-hmm. And and let me then take this moment to ask you for people who want to find out what you're writing about it as it's happening the days of where can they find you online and find this? Okay, uh, my website is I am Jasmine. It's so cute. It's just real easy. I am Jasmine because I am Jasmine, um, and it's J S M Y N E. Thank my dad for that. Um, dot com, and then I'm you know I do the social media thing. I'm not the greatest at it because you know i like in real life but i know that social media is important so i'm on twitter at jasmine i'm on facebook i'm on instagram um and you know i talk about a lot of things i mean i love to talk about social issues and politics and race and all that good stuff today i've been super consumed with afghanistan um just feeling for folks over there right now and um but yeah that's how people can find me um even the all of my previous work around Ed Buck is on IamJasmine.com as well. Good. Can I take a moment to, to be honest with you? Well, have you been lying to no. me time? <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to, you know, to have a, a, a discussion. Um, but you know, I, I, this is personal in some ways. Uh, you know, when I, when I heard the story, and it was the advocate uh, that I read the story, I was scared to talk about it, you know, talk about it even here on the show. And I think where the fear came from was recognizing what was happening, that Jamel Moore and Timothy Deans's story is not uncommon. And I might have I might have seen signs of this in even my own social spaces in the LGBTQ community. And I didn't want to admit it. And I didn't maybe or, you know, like subconsciously you're doing that. And you're scared to do that um, because, right, like the anti-LGBTQ people or the homophobic or transphobic people have always used these types yeah. of cases and incidents against us. And um, and so, yeah. you know, there are I, what I'm trying to get at is there's a lot of Ed Bucks out there. And this is this is, this sure. is one, one case and it's being a taking advantage of many queer people of color, many young queer people of color who you'd 
mentioned earlier, are homeless, who are poor, who are struggling to survive. You know, how do we, first of all, I think it starts with, we got to, we got to acknowledge this is happening in our community. That would be, I think that's, I think that's where you start, Michelle. You can't fix something you don't want to acknowledge is happening, right? And remember I talked about that intersection? Let's not leave out meth in the queer community because that's a huge issue, right? Um, Something I learned about over the past four years working um, on this because I did not know how bad uh, methamphetamine was within the LGBTQ um, plus community, and it's killing us. Um, it's and that is just as much a part of the issue as, you know, what you mentioned uh, in terms of you know the sex work and people being taken advantage of and the unhoused um, folks who are being unhoused. I mean, all of that goes hand in hand and hand in hand. Survival sex work is exactly what I said it. Survival sex work. You know, I gotta tell you. Nobody got on the stand during that trial and professed their love for Ed Buck, okay? Nobody got there and said, I was doing it because I loved him. We were going to be in this great relationship. If they didn't have to deal with that man, they wouldn't have dealt with that man. Person after person, witness after witness said, all he did is I need a place to stay. I needed food. I needed money for this. And it was all survival things. It was never I needed money for cell phones or you know, clothes or Nikes or whatever. It was always, I needed money to buy a new tent to sleep in or, you know, money for this or money for that. And so if we're going to address these issues and have conversations about them, we have to acknowledge what is happening in our community. I mean, particularly for LA, I do believe the cost of living is very high in San Francisco too. I mean, the cost of living is so high in, in LA that it's unacceptable for so many people that it's just more conducive for them to sleep in an encampment in a tent than it is, you know, they can't, they can't get an apartment. They can't, they simply just cannot afford it. And if they can't afford it, many of them don't even qualify because they want you to make four times the rent can't have a criminal record. I mean, on and on and on. Don't get me started on the barriers to renting, um, particularly in Los Angeles. So there are, I mean, this case, like I said, it just brings up so many issues that need to be talked about and addressed. And life goes on. There are Ed Bucks. There are, there continue to be, um, you know, Black survival sex workers, POC survival sex workers, people just doing what they have to do here to make it. Um, my hope is that the conviction of Ed Buck sent um, a smidgen of a message to um, the other Ed Bucks that you too can go to prison, <laughs> you know, and also a bigger message to the community that says you will be believed. That if you come forward, you will be believed and you will be taken seriously. Um, because we want people to come forward when people are hurting people like that. And that was a huge issue with these guys, that, that, is that when they first came forward, the sheriff didn't believe them and turned them away and, you know, gave Ed Buck the benefit of the doubt over them. Um, and we, that's another thing we have to change. A victim is a victim. Victims can be male. Victims can be female. Victims can be non-binary. A victim is a victim. And if they come forward and they say they're being hurt, um, by someone, we have a responsibility to listen to them and to find out the truth. 
you said you're still hearing from people who had uh, been victimized by Ed Buck. Are you mm -hmm. hearing from people who are, to keep this line of talk going, been victimized by other Ed Bucks? In other words, are you, mm -hmm. are they're coming forward to you as well? Yeah, I get a lot of emails. Uh, <laughs> I get emails about other, other Ed Bucks, people with other, you know, just other situations that I'm not Nancy Drew. But somehow people think I am and I can investigate. I'm not an investigator, but cute people think I am. But I get a lot of emails and I read each and every one of them. And if I think I can do something, I try to. If not, sometimes I forward it on to people who I think could or might possibly, you know, um, be interested. I mean, personally, so it was like four years. <laughs> and then I, uh, afterwards, like I just came back from vacation. I'm saying this week to go on vacation. But I, I went away and I came back and I'm still trying to like put everything together because I kind of, you know, stuff is still everywhere. And I'm trying to write this book and do all these different things. Uh, I, I, we all intend, like I said, to see this through however, however many more chapters it has to go. You know, and... And as long as I believe the story continues to be in the news, we're always going to continue to hear from people. Um, he had been doing, I can't say this enough, he'd been doing this a really long time. The problem is, is that people are embarrassed. You know, they've been um, told that, you know, sex work is bad or you're an addict, you know, you're a bad person, you know, no one's going to believe you or this and that. And, you know, I like I said, I think, you know, with his conviction, it's helping more people to feel, uh, you know, vindicated that maybe they can step forward. Um, I know I've sent a few people um, that did reach out to me over to um, the U.S. Attorney's Office to see what may come of it. I mean, there's no law that says that they can't file more charges against a man. I'm just saying, so... You're such an incredible voice for, um, I think, you know, so many of us, one, but uh, especially for folks who Ooh, want thank to. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. No, because let me tell you, you asked about the kind of emails I get. You know, you know, my favorite ones are the ones that say, thank you for being a straight black woman and standing up for black gay men. You're just amazing. Dad. And I'm just like, wow. I'm like, I'm part of community too. Mm. <laughs> so, so when you said that, I was like, oh, well, thank you for acknowledging that I'm part of the community. <laughs> for some reason, people think I'm like this straight black woman. There's nothing wrong with that. You ain't no straight woman. But I'm just saying that that's always the assumption for some reason with me. Well, first of all, mm -hmm. I mean, if, if something happened to me, I would hope that somebody reaches out to you and says, I hey. got you. I got you. <laughs> I want you to fight for me if I died mysteriously. Uh, uh, <laughs> but what I'm, where I'm going at is, you know, especially, uh, you know, being po political and po for those who are thinking about a political career or those who are thinking about, you know, being a journalist and, and being a person who is within the marginalized communities, right? Like you just have this thing where you, you don't quit. You believe in yourself, you believe in others. And I wish there were more of you, but the reality is that we have these hard roads that we have to climb uh, because people like Ed Buck are protected 
uh, or they just get treated differently, you know, bef- before we find out that, oh, okay, yeah. you know. Um, so if you would just, as we wind down, give us some thoughts for the young queer people, excuse me, of color out there who want to get into politics, who want to be a part of media uh, and want to find their voice. Well, I'm young too. So, um, no, just kidding. Well, no, I'm not. I am young. Um, but I would say just go for it. A lot of things have changed and a lot of things haven't changed. But when it comes to journalism, it's not the way it used to be, right? So back in the day, right, when you had to go to J school, you had to sort of share with one of my earpieces, um, do these certain, hold on. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen at some point. Do these certain things. And you don't have to follow that road anymore. We've created entirely different paths and ways to get to our audiences, which is one of the things I actually do like about our technical um, advances, right? Um, from just blogging, the podcast, from just, you know, ways to bypass the mainstream to get to, to where you're trying to go. The other thing I always tell people is to find out what you're passionate about and focus on that. Because if you focus on writing or talking or on whatever it is that you're passionate about, it'll come through in everything you do. You know, a lot of people... Um, I asked me like, well, you know, cause, oh, well, how can you work in politics? And you say, look, I, uh, first of all, I can walk and chew gum. And I intentionally chose to go in the direction that I'm in. If I wanted to be uh, in broadcast television or radio or whatever, which I was, I would do that. Um, but I like having these two worlds that I kind of operate in. It works for me, right? It may not work for everybody, but it is, how I was able to leverage like my relationships in the political world, my, and then my, you know, the stuff I do within, um, within news media to get to the point where we're at now in terms of, um, you know, the conviction of ad buck, that may not always be the case, but for this particular situation, it was sometimes, you will work on something that is so important that you realize, which is what happened to us. I realized this is going to take more than just journalism, you know, which is why we started Justice for Jamal um, and all of Ed Buck's victims, because we needed sort of an advocacy, an advocacy arm to everything. And that's unusual, right? When you think of reporters and journalists, they don't usually get in that involved in it, right? But sometimes... You never know. There, there may be that, you know, story or that situation that you just feel so passionately about that you're just like, okay, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to move forward and do this. And that's what happened in this case. But all of that came out of a passion. If you, you know, for me, I truly care about Black people. I care about Black queer people. I care about queer people. I cannot stand people being used and taken advantage of and hurt. And then, of course, there's the agonizing pain that you're dealing with when you deal with the families of people who have been killed or who have died prematurely. All of that, for me, was fuel to work even harder to help find them some semblance of of justice in all of this, right? So, you know, for people who are, you know, contemplating, you know, what they... First of all, you can do whatever you want to do. If you want to do politics and journalism and be in a plus size fashion like I am, you can do all of that. This is 2021. There's no rule that says 
you can't do that. You certainly can. I just encourage people to just really tap into what moves them in those areas, right? So for me in politics, what moves me the most, I've worked in Congress, I've worked, I've worked in Sacramento in our state legislature, I, you know, I've worked locally for several mayors and stuff, but what moves me the most is local politics. I love local politics because to me, it's the most personal, it's the stuff that affects your life the, 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 the fastest, you know, if they raise that water bill or that light bill or, you know, all of these things that affect our day-to-day -day life happens at City Hall or the County Board of Supervisors. That's, you know, what moves me. But for someone else looking at this, it may be that they want to be in the House of Representatives. They might want to, you know, run for office one day themselves or work for a member up until then. I just think that people need to sort of figure it out, like figure out what it is that moves them. Do they want to write legislation, develop policy? Like, what is it? And I tell people all the time, like, there's a role for everyone out there that wants to get involved. You just got to get into it. You just have to get into it. Nobody is going to, you know, tell you you can't do something. Like, you can do it. That's one of the things I love about, you know, this time that we've sort of morphed into now where people are more independent, people are speaking up more about the injustices. We're more um, in tune with things. And one of the things that I think the pandemic made really, really clear for all of us is you need to have more than one thing that you can do. Mm. Right? So yep. be it politics <laughs> and journalism or politics and being a chef or whatever, you know, just, you know, find your passion and get into it. Don't like an attorney that I love dearly um, always says, you know, life is not a, a dress rehearsal. And that's sort of how I try to live my life. Now, life is not a dress rehearsal. This is what we have. So if you want to do something, you need to get into it. John, any last questions? Well, the question I was going to ask really kind of, I was going to ask along these lines of politics and to, to bring it back to kind of where we started, which was specifically about your involvement with the Democratic Party and problems with that and hopeful solutions. So I was going to ask kind of like, What's your sense of the Democratic Party's trajectory? Is it getting better on these issues, or is it just a is it a, is a mess? But I mean, I think we could talk about that for a whole another hour. So. Oh, we could, we could. <laughs> well, we'll I just to ask, ask you this. to when, come. When back. will you run for mayor of LA? Oh yeah. When am I going to run for mayor of LA? Oh no, I'm not running. I'm hoping Karen Bass runs for mayor of LA. Um, I do plan on running for city council though. Um, but look, I complain about a lot of things when it comes to the Democratic Party, and that's my right. I get to. I am a Democrat. Um, but I also got involved with the party because to me, it's not fair to just sit around and complain about something and not try to get involved and make it better. I think that for people who do have issues with their Democratic Party, first they need to understand that just by being a registered Democrat does not make you a part of the Democratic Party. In order to be a part of the Democratic Party, you have to be an elected member. So you have a voice and a vote, right? You can help develop the platform, the values, the mission. And those are the rooms that I wanted to be in because clearly something is wrong. Because we, like I said earlier, we say Black Lives Matter, but are we really showing that Black Lives Matter, right? So I just, 
for me personally, I just believe like, look, you can complain about it and not do anything. You can complain about it and get involved. Um, if people want to see their party change, they need to get involved with it. How many people belong to Democratic clubs? How many people run to be on the County Central Committee or to be a delegate to the California Democratic Party, even the DNC, right? Most of us just mark Democrats, vote how we're told to, and go on about our business and complain about things. And then there are those of us who decided, hey, no, we're going to actually get involved and try to be a part of this. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us today. And all of you, thank you so much for joining us. And follow Jasmine. You can do that at I am Jasmine with a Y, by the way. Thanks to all of you for watching us online for this program. Uh, you can find, again, all of our upcoming programs and past audio and video at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. So stay, stay safe. Have a good weekend. Bye. Thank you.